He was an icon when I was growing up. So here we are, Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, and we are on Radio Free Nashville, 107.1 and 103.7 LP FM, streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The classes here at the HBCU, the big mission is to let you know what the real history is because oftentimes in these other, um, you know, predominantly white institutions, you're taught the side of history that is easier to follow, right? You're taught the, the side of history yeah. where, it, um, where it seems as though the, the Europeans are the heroes and, and everything in uh, our history either is barely there or not there at all. There is Sarah Saluski of Tennessee State University, and she's our special guest for the hour as we celebrate the young activists from the African-American community as we welcome and celebrate again Black History Month. Now, my name is Jim Wolgermuth, and I'm normally here with Tom Gross, but Tom's on assignment. Who knows where? Uh, He's a fellow Vietnam veteran, and we are Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using our experiences and lifting our voices for the causes of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Our network is comprised of over 140 chapters. Our radio show is on stations across the country. We meet the second Tuesday of the month at the Friends Meeting House which is 530 26th Avenue North in Nashville. Please join us. Remember, you can get a copy of the show by just going to our Facebook page and searching for Veterans for Peace Chapter 089. You'll find us. Please follow us on Twitter, VFP Radio Nashville and at VFP 89 Radio. And find any of our shows. You just have to go to BIT dot ly slash capital vfp radio hour and so that that's a link that you can get all of our shows also if you are a station online or on the air and would like us to send you our show we'd be happy to text me a request at 703-403-6135 703-403-6135. Also, if you have a question for us while we're on the air, and we'll try to get to it, but you can text a question or a comment to 703-403-6135, and we will try to get your question while on the air. Or if you're one of our nation- nationwide affiliates that are is not playing this when we're live, then text us a question, we'll get to it. And that's that. All right, promotions. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. Happenings, February 8th, the local chapter of Our Revolution is holding a summit. That is day after tomorrow. 
It starts at 11, but be there a little bit earlier. There will be speakers training some sort of food in the middle, I think. And it is going to be at the UAW Hall, 6207 Centennial Boulevard, Centennial Boulevard in Nashville. So here we are. Another February and another chance to celebrate Black History Month. And today, instead of focusing on the past, we are going to highlight the future with TSU senior and journalist-to-be, activist and activist now, Sarah Saluski. Now, as you know, if you've been following this show, I used to teach middle school. And I used to teach middle school in a rural North Carolina middle school called China Grove. Wonderful times, wonderful kids. But come February, I always get a question. Mr. W, why do we celebrate Black History Month? And if you look at some of the white supremacists, not that this young boy was a white supremacist, because it was always boys asking, um, not that he was a white supremacist, but, you know, there's a lot of white supremacists from the American Renaissance and other groups who say, why, why celebrate Black History Month? Well, the one reason is every other month is White History Month. That's what I used to tell the kids. We celebrate Black History Month to get a better appreciation of our neighbors of our neighbors. So without further ado, here's Sarah Saluski. Yes. So my name is Sarah Saluski. I come all the way from Orange County, California. Um, yeah, I lived in Orange County my entire life, grew up there. Um, so you notice my last name, Saluski. My dad is Italian and Polish and my mother is black. So I am biracial. Um, I grew up, I grew up in a predominantly, um, white nation population. I danced when I was younger. And a few years ago, I got into this activity called forensics. So uh, forensics is also known as speaking debates, not, you know, the dead body searching type of forensics. Um, but yes, I got into speaking debate. I danced my first year in college for a co-ed team. And then I was in a public speaking class uh, towards the end of that year. And I was deciding to leave the studio I was with and just stop competing uh, for dance. And my public speaking teacher recruited me to the speech team. And I, you know, thought I was just going to join uh, the speech team and just, you know, have something good to put on my resume. I was interested, always been big on um, justice and issues going on around the world in the community. And um, I thought it would be a, a nice little lane for me to try out. And so went to join the team. And it really is all history from there. Uh, it completely changed my life. I finally gave myself permission to accept all parts of me and really uh, love on myself. And I learned how to advocate for all of the communities I'm a part of. And really, I found uh, my voice in this activity. So fell in love, completely in love with, um, with that. And I earned my associate's degree in two years. But after applying to you know, a couple of different colleges, I didn't get into my ideal place, so I stayed. Um, another year and continue to do speech and then I got a couple scholarship offers from different places across the country. I almost accepted one um, at a pretty big uh, PWI, people know what that is, a predominantly white institution and I almost took it uh, but I found 
uh, Tennessee State University right before I was actually going to accept the offer, and I completely changed my plan. Uh, learned that TSU was uh, historically black college, and HBCU, and I wanted to come here. So I packed up everything and moved to Nashville. I am now in my last semester of undergrad. I'm a math comm major studying journalism. And yeah, I'm captain of my team and just trying to go from here. But yeah, that's my journey getting here it really was for speech and debate. And the fact that Tennessee State University was an HBCU uh, really kind of made me want to make the move and have a change of scenery, change of environment. And it was by far the best decision I've ever made. Well, that's awesome. Uh, I met you this last Tuesday evening when we both were uh, in a forum uh, in front of students talking about politics, talking about HBCUs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's when I got, that's when I had the honor of uh, actually participating on that, on that stage with um, four other young people. And one of the topics was HBCUs. So, why are HBCUs um, important? What just yeah, go from there? Yeah, so um, HBCUs, for one, going back into history, um, the reason why HBCUs were even created um, is because you know we weren't allowed acceptance into college at the time. So these HBCUs were created for us to be able to get an education, and so. Um, that's the history of how they started, and you know we have a, uh, a good amount across the country now that are um, HBCUs and are historically black colleges. But you know, of course, they accept uh, other um, groups of people, but they are predominantly um, black. Uh, the students are predominantly black, and to this day, I find, oh my gosh, there's some there's so much that's important about the education that you receive and just the experience you receive at an HBCU, especially for someone like me who comes from an environment that's completely different, coming to an HBCU changes your life in so many different ways. For one, you're, you're in an area where students look like you, a lot of the times the staff looks like you, and there's so much that, what, something that I love, there's so much that doesn't always have to be communicated, I feel like, oftentimes in society and in the real world, we're defending ourselves and our issues, and um, you don't really always have to do that here at an institution, and so there's a, there's a relief uh, and a calmness that you get in HBCU, but also you have a bunch of classes that are offered that maybe you wouldn't have um, at another university. I'm in a black arts and literature course right now. I took an Africana studies class um, last semester, and it's that type of curriculum that I feel like you don't always find, and it's not necessarily taught in the same way as other universities, but really that sense of community is one of the things that I think makes HBCUs one of the best uh, places to be. I mean, you really get an experience where you feel comfortable and you're in your element, and we get to take that with us when we go out into the real world and things are often uh, the opposite. And to have that just for a few years, you feel really lucky to be a part of an experience like that and, get, and feel liberated. I feel like that's the bigger thing is you feel so liberated uh, being here and being around so many beautiful, intelligent, and strong people. So it just lifts you up and pushes you out into the world uh, empowered. So, yeah. Um, right. Are HBCUs still, still vibrant and... Um, and healthy? 
You mean healthy like, uh, like what, what do you mean by that? Like vibrant and healthy? Can you uh, well, a little bit? financially, you know, financially healthy. Um, gotcha. Like, yeah. Yeah, so, so um, unfortunately, that's one of the issues that's still, um, that is plaguing um, HBCUs across the country is the lack of funding for HBCUs. So that's as great as they are. There are things that can definitely be improved and make them that much better. Um, there's definitely a lack of funding for HBCUs, or even a conversation has been brought up uh, within this past year of defunding HBCUs, which is crazy to think of when you're, especially when you're a student like me who's currently at an HBCU, and you're like, well, we're already, you know, missing uh, things that, you know, we want to rebuild campuses or get more staff and just build, uh, build upon things that are going to help faculty and help the students who are either here now or trying to get here um, to hopefully come to these institutions. So we're already, you know, behind there, but then the, even the conversation that's being brought up that people want to potentially defund them is just like, oh, it kind of, it makes you realize the lack, I guess, of importance um, the other people feel about HBCUs. They don't see the relevance anymore. They don't necessarily see um, the importance, the people in government, that's who I'm referring to. Um, but luckily, we've seen some things turn around that, you know, that uh, HBCUs are going to continue to be funded, but still, even though we still have the funding we do now, there's still a, a lack. And so, yeah, there's, they're not as healthy, I would say, as they could be. I think we definitely um, could use aid um, as far as the funding goes. So the Trump administration actually threatened to defund HBCUs? So yeah, there was something, um, there was an article that was going around, ooh, the past few months, there was, uh, I think this was what, a bill that was threatening to defund HBCUs, and that was kind of circulating um, through social media. It was on Instagram, it was on Twitter. Um, people that I know from different HBCUs were sharing it. We're all kind of just like, oh, wow, okay, this is terrible. Uh, so trying to figure out what was going on there, and um, they're still going to fund, but there was a conversation that sparked that, you know, threatening to completely defund HBCUs. And, it just makes you, things like that really make you realize, like, wow, people don't think that these institutions are important or they don't deem them worthy enough to fund, to give money to. Like, they have the, the view of why should we be paying for this and what's, what's the relevance. And it really makes you sit back as a student who attends an HBCU. It's like, it's the argument of do you see the value in us? And then now we're right back to, you know, the real world um, feeling of, you know, feeling uh, devalued or undervalued um, by society. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was a little bit to digest, but like I said, it did end up coming around that, you know, we'll still have funding. But even aside from funding, there's HBCUs who are losing their accreditation due to lack of funding and other issues. Um, and that's also unfortunate. So there's people I follow on different social media platforms who are, you know, always promoting uh, to keep those um, to extend a hand, you know, to those uh, institutions who are in danger of losing their funding or uh, losing their accreditation, excuse me. Um, and, yeah, that's still an issue right now. I feel like a lot of people, when they think of HBCUs, they think of some of the big schools, you know, they think of uh, Howard, they think of Morehouse, they think of Spelman, and um, 
mean, some of the other big HBCUs, but they forget about some of the smaller ones. They even forget about TSU, but those HBCUs are equally as important because they, they provide some of the experiences, and if not majority of the experiences I had touched on earlier for students and for faculty. We're, yeah. we're, tell me about the activism on campus. So go ahead. Yeah, so um, with, so a lot of what I do is really on a grassroots level, so creating conversations, um, building platforms to give people the knowledge of what's going on, to create dialogues, um, to just exchange opinions and viewpoints and perspectives. That's among uh, people my age or even um, people who are older than me. And that's on radio shows, that's on podcasts and whatnot. But the forensics team um, is one of probably the biggest ways I show my activism. So I travel the country as a competitive speaker. I speak on all different types of issues. And what really what I do in the world of uh, speech and debate, I give speeches on a bunch of different issues that I deem important, that are important to me. They're not always um, issues that are within the African American and Black community, but a lot of times they are there, and for a team that is in HBCU, that's a lot of what we talk about because it's a lot of what we feel is important in a lot of the things that we face every day that we want more people to understand. So that's the way that all of us on, on the team that I'm a part of and the team that I'm captain of, that's the way that we show our advocacy. So we travel the country and speak in front of I mean, going to a final round, if you get your speech to a final round, you're speaking in front of, you know, oftentimes hundreds of people. So we're constantly planting seeds in people's ears and letting them know this is what's going on. This is why my voice is important and the voices of my community are important. These are the issues that we're dealing with and what we can do to do better. A lot of the times in our speeches we'll, you know, provide numbers or provide um, hotlines or sources that people can further learn information. It's really a lot of what we do, like I said, is on a grassroots level, which is getting the information to people out there, making them aware, because oftentimes some of the issues that we're talking about aren't talked about in the media or on a bigger scale. And so that's really a lot of the advocacy work I've done in the past few years. But with um, as I grow my career, in the media, I'm, you know, dipping my toe more into activism. I'd love to be more on the ground. Back in California, I uh, marched for the March for Our Lives. They had a march in Santa Ana, that's near where I live, um, and that's in Orange County. So I marched in Santa Ana. I'd love to do more work like that, um, and I'm really looking forward to doing that in the future. So you're planning. So tell me, you're, you're, you want to stay in media. You want to stay in journalism. Um, uh, I know you're already, well, tell, you're, you're already on the radio, so tell us about that yes. and tell us where that's going to take you. Yes, so yeah, I, um, I'm a mass communications major with a concentration in journalism. And so journalism has all parts. It's multimedia. does a lot of things. You learn how to write. You learn how to shoot videos and how to, edit them and put them all together, but my, uh, my niche is really broadcast journalism. So TV and radio, the goal is ultimately to become a radio and TV personality, but I already am one, so I say I am one. Uh, I have a radio show currently. It's titled Activist of Today. It's underneath Talk Radio and TV Network, LLC, underneath their broadcasting network. I've been interning with them since May 2019, and they granted me my own little show. So I have a uh, 
last year they granted me that show. So I have a segment uh, the first and third Tuesday of every month titled Activists of Today, where the 30-minute show, I interview different types of activists all over the country, or it can be um, in, different, in another country besides America, because they have access to, I believe, over a 1,000 countries. And so I'm really interested in talking to people who are reaching back in, into their communities and they're pulling people forward. They're doing the work on the ground or they're doing work in policy. I interviewed the policy director of ACLU in Hawaii. I've interviewed the AIDS activists. Um, I'm really interested in it all, people who are really out there and they're being the change. They're not waiting for anybody else. They're making the changes in, into the world of what they want to see, and they're being that positive uh, movement, and they're really starting that. So that's really what I do right now, and, yeah, I love it. I really love working in the media, not only having a voice and feeling like my voice is powerful, but giving other people a chance to use their voice and providing them a platform to do so. Well, great. Now, what would you consider to be the primary issue, the primary issue in which activism would be centering around in the African-American community? The, a primary issue centering around activism? Yeah. Or if there's five primary issues, <laughs> tell me tell me what tell me what's important uh, what's important to a young African American activist like yourself. Okay, perfect. Okay, so um, actually this week on the panel, something I love that um, Justin Jones brought up. He said that um, a lot of us are born into activism, right? So we choose activism, we're born into it. Sometimes it can be both. But I really resonated with um, being born activist, born into activism, that comment that he made. And just, I think sometimes being inherently who you are makes you want to get involved into activism or advocacy work because the issues that you see in the media, you know, and whether it's on the news or the radio, those things affect your life, your everyday life, how you move throughout this world. So sometimes those of us, uh, a lot of us within the African-American community feel like we have no choice but to say something. And uh, that's definitely how I feel. There's so many issues right now um, that within the African-American community that we're advocating for and speaking up about. One of them is actually going around social media right now, and it's in the news as well, uh, discrimination in the workplace and education. I don't know if you've heard, but uh, DeAndre Arnold, he's a teenager. He's been suspended for his hair, so he wears locks, and he's unable to walk at his graduation unless he cuts them. So that's been crazy hearing about that story, but it's not new. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, say, I say crazy, but that issue is not new. We've been uh, discriminated against for our hair and, and, how, we, uh, and how we dress in and education and in the workplace forever. This isn't a new issue, but it's crazy to think um, after, you know, all these hair movements and things, after, you know, we think that we're gaining a little bit of traction, we kind of have issues like this that remind us that we really haven't moved uh, that far when you have a teenager who's literally being suspended for his hair. And so that's definitely an issue uh, that's going on right now that a lot of people are sharing and talking about and just trying Where to is get, that take uh, Yeah. Where is that taking place? Sure. Let's pinpoint it. 
I'm trying to DeAndre. DeAndre is in what state is that in? Because it's even in states like California, which you wouldn't think yeah. um, deal with the hair discrimination. I've heard about it out there too. Not for me, luckily, because that really would have been um, unfortunate for me. Luckily, I have not experienced that. But in other schools in California, you even hear about discrimination there. So this is actually in Texas. So, yeah, this is going on okay. in Texas yeah. uh, where DeAndre is dealing with that. So, Texas is a place that I've heard of a couple times bring up issues about hair. Uh, but like I said, it's even in uh, what people consider, you know, liberal states like California. The discrimination exists there, too. It was only recently that uh, I believe a law or bill was passed in California about uh, the discrimination against uh, hair for African Americans is uh, illegal or unlawful. It was only recently that that happened. They finally, like, approved something like that. So you're just like, oh, okay, you know, it's 2019, this when that happened, you're like, all right, I guess we're going somewhere. But then an issue like this is kind of remind you that it's taking the rest of the country a little longer to catch up. Um, but oh, for another, sure. we talked, yes, and we, I know we also spoke um, earlier about the lack of funding for HBCUs, which prevents us from rebuilding and fixing these longstanding issues. But in addition to that, I was actually talking with a teammate of mine um, earlier today about HBCUs, but how she was stating to me, and we had this conversation about most, if not all, HBCUs are in a food desert or food insecure, and how that not only hurts the student body, but the communities around the HBCU, which tend to be predominantly black and low-income households. So we were just talking about, like, oh, wow, that, that really is, it's really most HBCUs where they're in this food desert. You have to travel far to get to a Walmart or, you know, wherever else you get your food. And uh, that's insane as well. The, the, uh, the coincidence, I guess, the, the, with quotation marks, I say that, that um, that's where these HBCUs are yeah. located and the communities around them that suffer because of that. Uh, so that's definitely another big issue. But something else I really wanted to make sure I, I brought up is media coverage. And so not only, we've been talking a long time about the way black people are portrayed in the media. That's been a conversation that's been going on forever oh, about how we're portrayed either as criminals or um, we're dehumanizing the media. But another um, big topic right now is the lack of media coverage that we get. Because currently, right now, there are approximately 64,000 black women missing in the United States. And the, the how, how many? In the, 64,000, approximately. Good golly. Good grief. That's awful. Yeah, are missing in the United States, and the media isn't talking about it, not nearly as much as they should be. I was, um, I was able to pick this topic, actually, last semester to do a podcast episode. This is an assignment for uh, my radio and TV class. And so, you know, we ha had the task of producing a podcast episode. It can be about you know, whatever we wanted to, as long as we got it approved. And so I chose to do this topic about where are these black women? Why are they missing at these rapid rates? And why is nobody talking about it? I was able to speak with uh, Phyllis G. Williams, who um, is on TV. She's a podcast. Uh, she has a podcast as well, how her aunt went missing back in, I believe it was the 80s. And I also got to talk to the Black and Missing Foundation and their efforts in 
talking about this and bringing awareness to this issue, but that also links with uh, human sex trafficking. Uh, that's a lot of where um, we believe these women have gone is the human sex trafficking, which is a huge issue right now within the community. It was uh, a little scary, I'm going to be honest with you, and to um, last semester go on social media, and I'm, I'm telling you, there was about every day, and if not a couple times a day, that I would see a post of somebody posting about their sister or their cousin or their mom, and they're missing. And these are all black women. I mean, you would see it all the time. And it was really getting scary to, to sit here as a black woman scrolling through social media and just seeing it constantly. And the issue was really in front of my face. It was years ago when I really started to recognize it. I believe it was about 2016 when some media was talking about it. And I recognized it then, but to where it's grown now, I mean, it's, it's at my fingertips. And it is really, uh, we're, we're really trying to get black women aware and, you know, make sure that they're safe. But human sex trafficking and the fact that no one's really talking about us going missing is, is not only an issue, but... It, it creates this feeling that nobody's going to come looking for us because they're not looking for us now. And there's a lot of issues that go into why they're not looking for us and what they deem important, what the media deems important, and the authorities deem important, so on and so forth. And even going back to the 80s when, uh, when this woman, um, I believe her name was Doll Crooks, went missing, the lack of effort it went into finding her, we're finding the same issue happened in 2020. So that is that one is a huge issue that is uh, really hurting the community currently. How do young ladies take care of themselves, protect themselves? Yeah, yeah, and, and that's and that's really a big uh, it's a big question mark for a lot of us. So it's what do you do? And a lot of um, I say a lot of us, because a lot of black women have been trying to create um, you know tips for women, you know, never walking alone, or um, you know, a lot of things that we've been told growing up already is, you know, having uh, your phone on you or even carrying, you know, pepper spray or whatever you need to. But there is an app, and the app is called Moonlight. So if you ever feel like you're being followed, you can go to this app and you hold the hold until safe button. So you release uh, that okay. button when you've reached your home or your car or some sort of safe destination and you enter uh, a pin or whatnot. So this app is called Moonlight. You can always... Uh, download this. That's for uh, those who are, you know, in fear of human trafficking because it's mm -hmm. very much real. So that is the name of that app. Um, and and you and you said and you said moonlight. Moonlight with an N. So N O O N L I G H T. Moonlight. Yeah, you can look that up. And oh, moonlight. That. Okay. All right. It can alert the police in your area of an emergency. And so there's, there's a couple different apps, not just the one that I'm uh, referring to, but there's a couple similar apps that are doing that function to where you can get in contact with the police um, more urgently and at the moment that you may be um, experiencing danger or, or whatnot. But a lot of it is, you know, making sure you're not alone. You're not leaving places alone. You're not leaving places in the dark alone, uh, making sure your family is aware and your family and friends are aware of your whereabouts, sharing your location with people that you trust. Um, but it's really, we're just, we're doing our best to protect ourselves out here. But human sex trafficking has been an issue in America for a really long time. But to know that you're uh, a target, you just have to be that much more aware.
you brought up um, something in that last statement, and I'm just going to pursue it a little bit. You said with the app you can hold this down and it'll send a signal to the police. How? What's your level of trust with the police these days? <laughs> Yeah, because then there's, I was, gonna, I was like, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to go off on a tangent on that. But, um, huh, and that's another, that's another issue because, you know, you're like, okay, so you have this app and then the police come, but I know a lot of other uh, fellow black women, but myself included, who are scared of the police, you know, who are scared of the police, who don't trust the police. Um, friend of mine experienced an incident last year and the police were called and she had called me scared because of course the police are there to help her but she's scared of the police and she's a black woman so you know it's you're calling an authority that is supposed to help you but there's been this culture that has been created by authorities to fear them and and rightfully so to fear them because of what has happened in the past and what's currently still happening with the black community and the police or just minorities uh, communities of color in the police in general. So even with that aspect as well, but also we still know that in uh, a lot of predominantly black communities, the police will take forever to get somewhere where a call, you know, happens, you know, oh, I need help here. And if it's, you know, deemed as a, a bad community, a community of crime, that the police will take their time getting to you. So it's really left a lot of us questioning with, what do you do? So it sounds like you almost need to create an app that instead of calling the police, um, maybe it calls or notifies friends or family or, you know, maybe, you know, uh, some some neighborhoods have a neighborhood watch. Um, right. And so maybe this would be uh, something because uh, – well, you know, there's just so much history that is coming to light over the last 10 years about the problem, and that is a very generous word, with policing and yeah. uh, African Americans, people of color, immigrants, they are so often the target. I mean, when somebody calls the police, they show up and they shoot through a window and kill a, a young girl who I think was babysitting. Um, mm-hmm. When you, you know, and, and that is not an isolated incident. So, no, it's not. Um, so it would... And, with, and with, with all of those issues, I think, and to kind of go to your point of, uh, neighborhood watch or things like that. There's been ever since uh, I think really within this last year, we've really been able to see, um, like I was explaining earlier, scrolling on social media, seeing um, people post about their sisters and their cousins and their friends and their moms and aunts who have gone missing. There's been a call for this movement for uh, black women and men to protect each other. And so we're really in uh, that movement right now where people aren't, I mean, Hopefully they really weren't before, but really uh, an accountability uh, partner in the community to have that and to not let um, people walk to their cars by themselves or leave places alone. And I think um, 
this issue that we've seen more in front of our eyes has called for that movement. And so people are taking a little bit more responsibility in their roles as friends or as brothers or as sisters and, and what have you. So that movement, I feel like, uh, has been happening, especially within the last year or two. Let me, let me ask you, um, I grew up in the 60s, and during the 60s there were great strides, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and of late, um, portions of the Voting Rights Act have been eliminated, um, undermined, and uh, it has really hurt, really hurt the uh, enforcement of voting, especially in the South, but not totally in the South. Uh, is that is that part of a concern of um, of your peers in college, of your other young young friends, um, seeing seeing something like that erode. Yeah, so voting. I think uh, the last election that took place, people were a big thing on social media was seeing people um, being frustrated because they had to go so far out. To, just to vote, right? So we're still dealing with that issue where people have to take a bus and another bus just to get to a polling place to vote. And a lot of people who are in uh, low-income communities or who are uh, in that uh, in that bracket um, of not, you know, having uh, they can't afford to miss work, right? So you're, you know, it's election day, you can't afford to miss an entire day's work, but it takes you this long to get to a polling place. That's still frustrating and discourages a lot of people from voting. I mean, and that's, that's uh, minorities um, especially, but that's a lot of people's issue uh, right now. People at polling places being difficult, trying to come up with reasons of why you can't vote. Um, I believe uh, Justin brought up uh, on the panel about not being able to vote with your student ID at one point, but you know, the faculty could vote with their IDs and, and issues like that. So there's definitely a conversation that's uh, brought up around my peers with either their families that experience um, the issues of trying to, to vote or who have been discouraged from voting in the past. And that kind of trickles down, you know, to the youth. If your parents or your grandparents have been discouraged from voting in the past because of the issues that happened, you're not necessarily going to be encouraged to vote, but it's been the breaking of that cycle. Right, so I've had a lot of conversations uh, with people on my campus or friends of mine trying to get them encouraged to vote, but they were discouraged because of issues that their families uh, have experienced because um, of the voting complications of the past and somewhat present. So yes, I would say that's still a conversation that's being had currently. Yeah. Now that all those challenges is. Um, have you seen, and I think you mentioned it just a little bit, um, is, is there an apathy within the you know, young African-American community? Like, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, my vote doesn't yeah. matter, or it's too difficult to go vote, yeah. and look where we've been, or look what's happening. It's, yeah. you know, is, there, is, is, there, is there a trend in that? Uh, community you definitely in, in you young... definitely hear yeah you definitely hear that yes I would say um, it's something in here all the time that you know that your that your vote doesn't matter um, and 
I understand as much as I am on the other side of like, you know, register to vote. Um, I do understand where they're coming from. You know, I understand because of history, how in even now, <laughs> even now how the issues that we just talked about are still happening. You're discouraged to vote. So after, um, you know, seeing your family and your friends go through a lot of issues like that, you're discouraged to vote. So I understand when people saying, you know, or your vote doesn't matter or, you know, um, my one vote isn't going to swing anything. It's not going to change anything. And I understand the sentiments, right? But uh, I am always the person who is on the other side of seeing how much power there is in our vote and that they wouldn't, and really the sentiment of they wouldn't be trying to stop us from voting if our vote didn't matter. We wouldn't be going through all of these obstacles and, and, and facing all of these challenges to vote if our voice didn't matter. They wouldn't be keeping us from the polls if our vote didn't matter. And so that's always um, my rebuttal, but also the thing that I say to people to encourage them to, to use their voice and their opinion, even if it differs, if it differs from mine within the African-American community because of how long we've been kept out of a say in this country, I feel like it's so important that now that we do, we have the right to get out here and, and voice our opinions and choose and have a say in who we want running this country um, that we have to. We have no, we have no choice. It's, it's part of our duty and because if all of those that came before us didn't do what they did, we wouldn't even, have this, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. We wouldn't even have the option. And because of them, I feel like to honor them correctly, we have to continue and move forward. So to honor them and to move forward, do you think the – well, let me ask you this. Is, is there awareness within the youth today, within the um, young um, the young students at TSU and mm-hmm. anywhere about that struggle – that went went on in the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, uh, led by, you know, uh, and Nashville had such a key role in the early days mm-hmm. with John Lewis and Marion Barry, James Bevel, Diane Nash. Is there an awareness of the history of where the African community uh, has has come from and is now yeah. today? Absolutely. Um, as much as there is the feeling of, um, I feel like sometimes, you know, what's the point or maybe a hopelessness, there are so many of us who are aware of our history and where we come from, and especially here at TSU, being uh, in Nashville and, um, and being out here. I remember when I came here for the first time and learning about all, I mean, I knew some of the history, but really learning about it. And I went to um, this museum that's down the street from Tennessee State University. And uh, the man that he's, uh, it's an African-American museum. It has a bunch of musicians in it um, and whatnot. But he's, uh, this man, he's an owner, an African-American man, and he's brilliant. He was talking about the marches led up and down um, the street and, and, you know, just going back to that time period where so much history was made. And I feel like, especially as you learn, you can feel the history around you and how uh, trailblazers were here and everything that they did uh, to really push the needle, right, to move the needle uh, forward. And all of that bravery, learning about everything that took place 
on these grounds, also outside of here, there's so many of us who are aware of what took place and want to continue to honor those, like I said before, that came before us and, and move forward. A lot of us are getting active and having conversations. I mean, Michaela Davis, our junior president, who created the panel um, where we met, you know, there's people, there's so many people like her and mm -hmm. people like uh, myself who are having these conversations. We just need more of it, but it is definitely happening. I have friends at other schools, um, even uh, PWIs, the predominantly white institutions, who are doing the same work or similar work um, as myself and my peers, uh, creating that dialogue and those platforms and traveling the world, uh, speaking to tons of people about these issues and how far we've come, but also where we want to go. So, yes. Still doing the work. Good, good. And yeah, still doing the work. And I think that's probably another one of the reasons um, that an HBCU is so important to because they would keep that history alive, I think, better than a predominantly white institution. Or am I wrong? Am I um, or am I no, I think demeaning the, no, the white institution? Right. Okay. No, I think you got it right because yeah. I think in, uh, in the classes here at the HBCU, the big mission is to let you know what the real history is because oftentimes in these other, um, you know, predominantly white institutions, you're taught the side of history that is easier to follow, right? You're taught the, the side of history yeah. where, it's, um, where it seems as though the, the Europeans are the heroes and, and everything in uh, our history either is barely there or not there at all. You don't learn about um, these big pioneers who are part of our community until sometimes you get to these institutions. I've learned history since I've been here. I'm like, no way. I did not know that. I didn't know this person or this little small piece of history. And now I'm, I'm, I'm 22 years old. So this is something I should have learned back, you know, in, in grade school. But it wasn't in my history book. Yeah. So I feel like a big mission at these um, HBCUs is to stay true to the actual history and let you know the side that wasn't told. Exactly, exactly. So where do you think things are going with regard to activism in the African-American community? Where, where is things going? And if you want to even just individualize it, like where are you going? Or, you know, yeah. what's, what's the future look like? Because we, we're, we've got a president right now who's borderline tyrannical and that's often that's mm -hmm. generous um and yeah. <laughs> he he has a he's a party of toadies that are just in lockstep with him yeah. uh and so as our republic is on the the brink of of ending with where where do you see things going? Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, no, you're, you're sorry to be fine. so dismal. Um, no, you're you're totally fine. No worries. It's uh oh man, these last few years. Um, whew, I'll start I'll start going back a little bit. Um, I think when Trump got elected, because we had just come from you know seeing a black president, right, and that was something that. A lot of us didn't think that we were going to see in our lifetime. I'm sure you probably didn't think right. we were going to see it in in your lifetime. Oh, and so that was oh, that's for sure. Huge. 
Yeah, you, we didn't yeah. think that we were going to see that. So I feel like, you know, he got elected and we were like, okay, we might be getting somewhere, right? Okay, we have a black president. And then Trump got elected. And whew, the wave that was felt um, for me, I was like, it seems, and I, I uh, can't think of his name, the, um, the anchor who said it, but uh, that Trump's uh, election to office um, was a white lash. And he used, he used yeah. white lash as for, you know, for uh, us having our time with Barack Obama that, you know, this was our, our payback, you know, and uh, we got Trump who, who, I mean, I, the feeling I felt when he got elected, it was, uh, I mean, I, I, I personally was really emotional um, that night from hearing this man speak and knowing what he stood for it just seemed like what just happened. Like it really shook the country and a lot of us as, um, as individuals. And so after seeing everything he's done since he's been in office and what he plans to do, um, there's been this big call to action within a lot of communities. Um, and, you know, I mentioned uh, on the panel, I'm a proud um, black queer woman. So I'm a member of a couple different uh, marginalized communities. So not only am I, am I black, but I'm a woman. And, um, you know, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community as well, LGBTQ plus community as well. And so in all of the communities that I'm part of, and even um, ones that I'm not, uh, other minorities and other marginalized communities, there's been this call to action that we can't just sit back if we were, right? If we weren't sitting back before, that during this next election, we have no room for any of that. Because who is showing up are the people who support this man, the people who are, are bigoted and racist and homophobic and transphobic and xenophobic. They're going to be at the polls. They're going to back this, this man and the movement that he's created because even after we um, remove Trump, I'm going to speak that into existence, even after we remove him, um, we're still left with the movement that he sparked, right? The people coming out from, exactly. you know, their hiding places as, as racist and all of the other things that I uh, mentioned before that he's brought them out and they feel proud to be who they are because they saw someone like him up in, in the public eye and leading a country, uh, leading America at that. And so we still have to deal with that. But I feel like the call, if there's been this call to action that we can't afford to take a step back, that those, those movements that we spoke of uh, before um, that happened in places like Nashville and across the country, we have to bring a lot of those back and we really have to use our voices and speak up for ourselves, for our communities continuing to do so and getting people to go out there, register, and vote and be the change, right? Even if aside from voting, creating platforms and groups of people and, and uh, organizations and whatnot to protect ourselves um, and getting the right people in control, getting in the right room so we can advocate for ourselves, getting our allies in the room so they can, you know, also echo our voices. Um, but really, yeah, I feel, hopefully that answers your question, but there's been a, that big call to action dealing with, uh, dealing with Trump and his administration. But like I said, even after we remove him, we're still going to have to fight. It's not enough to just remove him. So you think that young African-Americans, young people are going to come out 
this election in droves? Do you think? You hope? I think we're I think we're coming. I hope. I hope uh, from what I see, um, you know, on social media and the conversations I have, I'm hoping that we will. But it seems as though that's that's what we're planning for. We're planning to go out. We're planning to vote. Um, we're telling our friends to vote. We're telling our family to vote. And uh, that's what it seems like it's going on right now. I mean, I, I uh, obviously I can't speak for everybody, but from what I've seen, it seems as though that uh, that is the plan, and it's even creating the conversations um, like we had the other night um, at HBCUs, and even um, as uh, Justin I know is traveling to a couple different uh, universities and having those conversations that we want to, that we want to be involved. And so I'm hoping that uh, that that is the actual case when it comes time to get involved in these elections. So, okay. So tell us again where people can listen to you um, uh, through your podcast. Through your 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 radio, tell tell us where again that you are at, so that people can t- dial yes. in. So um, ways to follow me and stay connected with me. So the um, the network that I intern for is Talk. So that's T dot A dot L dot K Talk Radio and TV Network LLP. You can find them on Facebook. They have a Facebook page. And they live stream all of uh, the radio shows underneath that network. So my boss and the other people who have shows underneath the network, um, you can stream our shows live by visiting that Facebook page. Um, but also, um, if you want to listen to it directly um, and on your phone, the name of my show is Activists of Today. And you can dial in the first and third Tuesday of every month at 5 p.m. Central or 6 p.m. Eastern. For my California folks, if you're listening at all, it is 3 p.m. You guys know that. Uh, the call-in number is 719-820-9171. And again, that's every first and third Tuesday of every month. I always am talking to activists around the world and getting people involved, letting you know what it is that they're doing, and so on. So. You can go ahead and uh, so people can call in. Shows. People can call in. Mm-hmm. You can dial in. Uh, well, and get uh, well, so what happens? Go ahead. Good. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So you can dial in and, and listen live. Uh, the engineer who controls my show um, just only has uh, me and my guests on, so we can you know you can only hear us, but everyone else just gets muted. But you can hear us live have the conversation, so that's really awesome. And for updates on my show, just in case something happens and I'm missing a show or whatnot, um, you guys can follow me at Sarah, so that's S-A-R-A-H underscore Salewski, that's S as in Sam, U-L-E-W-S-K-I. And it's also Sarah Salewski on Facebook. And, yeah, that's pretty much how you find me if you want to Email me about potentially becoming a guest. It's my last name first, so that's S U L E W S K I Sarah twenty five at gmail dot com. Okay. Well, this has been extraordinary, and I suspect we'll be seeing more of you because I some hope of these. So. <laughs> Some of these folks on CNN and MSNBC, they can't last forever. In fact, some of them don't need to last for another week. 
But uh, yeah, this it I uh, I'm thinking um, you're going to make a name for yourself, um, and so that I was really honored to be in that panel because there's Justin Jones going to be a na- make a name of himself, and there's Sarah Salusky going to make a name for herself, <laughs> and I'll be able to yeah. write down in my diary that somebody will look at and. 20 years after I'm long gone, and say, wow, he, he met Sarah. And, uh, <laughs> well, heck yes. So oh, that's thank awesome. You so much. So any, thank you. You're, well, you're welcome. Any final words? No, I just, I'm so honored. Um, thank you so much for, for having me on the show. I'm honored to have this platform to talk to you and whoever else is listening just about um, some of my thoughts and feelings and bring awareness to some of the issues that are really close to my heart and uh, into my community um, that I'm a part of. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to, one, meet you at that panel. It was great to, to hear some of your experiences um, and, you know, share conversation and dialogue with you. So thank you so much. I'm so honored to, to be on this show tonight, and I really uh, appreciate um, this opportunity, but I hope to be connecting with you in the future as well. Let's turn the volume up. There you go. There was Sarah Saluski, a dynamic young lady and a voice for the future. And you can bet on it. And so here we are at the end of the show. And um, of course, I'm going to play a song about the change that we're going to see from Sarah's generation, Justin's generation. And yeah, it's an old song, but it's a good song because change is is gonna come bye now more next week
Why? Wow.